Today's guests are looking to win your vote in the upcoming Vancouver Municipal Election for City Council. Running under the political party of COPE, which is the Coalition for Progressive Electors, I welcome incumbent City Councillor Jean Swanson and former Coastal Front guest Breen Ouellette to our Municipal Elections series. Jean was first elected to Council in 2018, but she's been playing the anti-poverty, social justice ground game for over four decades. Her accomplishments include working with residents of the Vancouver's downtown east side to protect low-income housing and improve living conditions. She co-authored annual reports on the single room occupancy, hotel stock and rentals. And interesting, she was the COPE NDP unity candidate for mayor in Vancouver in 1988. Fellow candidate Breen is a proud Métis, a recently new father, activist, and lawyer with a long list of achievements, including being one of the commission council lawyers for the National Inquiry into Missing, Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which we talked about in our last podcast. Breen was also the a consultant for the recent Coming Home Report for the City of Saskatoon, which convinced their council to establish an independent representative of matriarchs to protect Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Okay, so we want to start start by letting the, the uh, listeners to our podcast know a little bit about yourselves individually and about COPE. So, uh, Gene, why don't we start with yourself? Maybe you can spend a couple minutes just telling people who you are for those who may not know who you are. Yeah, well, I'm a city councillor now for almost four years. Before that, I was um, volunteering at the Carnegie Community Action Project, working for better housing, higher welfare rates, and to slow down or stop gentrification in the downtown east side. Before that, I was uh, taking care of my grandson and I wrote a book called Poor Bashing, The Politics of Exclusion. And I worked with a group called End Legislated Poverty for a number of years, was active in the anti-free trade movement. I worked for the Hospital Employees Union and way back in the 70s, I worked at the Downtown East Side Residents Association with Bruce Erickson and Libby Davies. Wow. Who old codgers like me will remember. <laughs> that's a long, that's quite the history. Um, I imagine that the downtown east side's changed uh, quite a bit from the 1970s. Yeah, it has changed. It's, yeah. it's back in those days, there was only about, I would say, a tenth as many homeless people. Is that right? Back in those days, welfare rates were high enough to eat and pay the rent. And governments were build, building lots of social housing. And in those days, even poor people could afford social housing. Nowadays, poor people can't afford most social housing. So wow. there were strong government policies that caused the downtown east side to be in better shape in the 70s than it is now. Well, we're going to spend some time talking about that because I know that's very important to you. Uh, Bree, maybe about you for, for the listeners who haven't met you before, let's hear a little bit about yourself. Okay. Uh, well, I'm a Métis person originally from Saskatchewan. I come from a, a, a long line of uh, notable Métis uh, people. Uh, my, two of my ancestors, uh, uh, my third great-grandfather and my third great-grandmother on different lines uh, are notable for... Um, my great third great grandfather was in the battle at Batoche in 1885, and uh, 
he died in the final hours of the battle uh, because he was laying down suppressing fire so the other Métis combatants could escape. And uh, he took a bayonet in the stomach at 93 years of age and died on, on the hill. And my third great-grandmother, Marguerite Madeleine Troche, is notable because uh, she's one of the very few people in history to have been scalped and survive. And she was scalped at 17 years of age. Uh, and, uh, and she lived to be 85. Um, my, uh, great grandfather, George William, uh, uh, fought in the Boer War and, uh, he wore a 45 on his hip until the day he died. And, uh, my great uncle Harold was a paratrooper in World War II and uh, his record is still classified. So we don't know exactly what he was up to, but it was apparently pretty important. <laughs> And uh, my grandfather, Laird, was a world champion dog mushing uh, racer. And uh, he won the world championship in the Palm, Manitoba in 1952 and 1958 and raced dogs all across Canada and the United States. Wow. So, so you've got basically the point is you've got big shoes to fill here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Okay. Now, now you when the reason for those listeners who may not know the reason you were in uh, our studios and we interviewed a couple of years ago, maybe it was even three years ago now, you were running under the federal NDP against Teddy Fry, um, and you you weren't obviously successful. I mean, it's a, that's a tough one to win with Hetty. Yeah. Um, what have you done since then? Well, I ran against her again in 2021. Okay. And we gained some more ground, uh, built uh, uh, some really strong support in uh, in uh, the West End and and the rest of the Vancouver Centre riding. Um, it, it, it was actually quite remarkable uh, because we only had a six-week campaign uh, on that one, and we managed to uh, raise $100,000. So there's an appetite for change down in, uh, in Vancouver Centre. It's just going to take uh, a little more runway for for a campaign to make it happen. Yeah, and uh, and then you know I'm a lawyer. Uh, I was a lawyer with the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And as you said in the intro, uh, I uh, assisted on a report to the City of Saskatoon, which uh, resulted in them this year allocating the budget to begin uh, rolling out the. Uh, representative for matriarchs uh, in Saskatoon, which is a really interesting um, uh, uh, change in uh, the way that uh, cities can handle um, issues uh, involving Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people, and I, I'll talk about that more. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I'm doing other things in my in my law practice. Uh, you know, uh, I can't talk about all of them, obviously, because of client. Uh, uh, solicitor client privilege yeah but, um, but pra practicing law is but yeah good. practicing law yeah. and i've got a i've got one i can talk about a tiny bit uh yeah. I'm, I'm doing a uh an rcmp complaint uh for a former witness at the national inquiry okay so, yeah okay okay good well that's good good intro for both of you let's talk about cope for a moment and, and you've obviously been involved with cope for many years gene um for those listeners who aren't familiar with cope this is the uh, coalition for progressive electors. Can you talk a bit about your organization more broadly and 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 what it represents for this upcoming election? Yeah, I got involved in COPE back in the 70s when Harry Rankin was on city council for COPE. And I was working at the Downtown Eastside Residents Association and we always said Harry was on the inside and we were on the outside. So when we had something we wanted City Hall to do, um, we'd go to Harry and he would do it for us. Like I remember once 
uh, there was a bunch of uh, stores that were selling rubbing alcohol as a beverage. And so we called up the city and complained, oh, we can't crack down on these, please. And the city response was, oh, it's not a problem. So I went and collected a whole bunch of empty rubbing alcohol bottles around the neighborhood in a big garbage bag, took them up to Harry's committee. In those days, they had committee, spilled them all out on the table <laughs> and said, yes, we do have a problem with rubbing alcohol being sold as a beverage. And then his committee basically cracked down on those stores and stopped wow. it. So that, that's just one example. We got a standards of maintenance bylaw, you know, it says cockroaches are illegal and things like that. And that was because of his work. And we'd call him up, and he'd come down and see, check things out, and then we could get. So I always wanted to be that kind of a council person. I wanted to be somebody on the inside who could work with people like he worked with people on the outside. Okay. Um, and Cope has been doing that kind of stuff for 50 years. And we were born out of the Vancouver and District Labor Council. Um, when I ran for mayor in 1988, I was the Labor Council candidate. Um, and, you know, COPE was responsible or really pushed for and obtained the uh, nuclear weapons free zone back in the 80s when okay. everyone was fighting nuclear weapons. And some of those signs are still around. They are, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was part of a big push worldwide to try and, you know, push senior governments to not blow us all up. So COPE has been working for things like that, rent control, helping lower income people, helping working people, that kind of thing. Okay, for great. For 50 years. For 50 years, okay. And the two of you are two of four people running under the city council slate, is that correct? Yeah, I'm thrilled with our candidates this yeah? year. So we always have Breen and yourself. Who are the other two? Tanya Webb-King, she's um, another Indigenous person. And Nancy Trigueros, who is uh, from Mexico um, and has really been involved heavily in uh, trying to make things better for immigrants. Okay, good. Sounds like a good good powerhouse team. And Tanya is really involved in tenant movement. Okay. Well, that's a good segue into the first topic, which is about renters' protection and housing. Now, Jean, you've been an, uh, an anti-poverty activist. As you pointed out earlier, you, you wrote a book called Poor Bashing. Um, so that I'm going to check that out after, after uh, we do this conversation. And you've dedicated... It's in the library. Is it? Okay. <laughs> uh, um, and for decades, you've been dedicated to uh, social issues such as renters' protection, rent controls, workers' rights, and safe supply. First question for you. Do you think that the current council has the same drive that you do to campaign for these types of issues? No. Okay, I kind of figured you'd say no. So if not, why not? They represent different interests. You know, some of them are on there, they represent business more than I do. I'm more working for the little guy, right? They're working more for business. Um, I was at a meeting the other night, oh, there was a motion to allow um, businesses to serve alcohol at night in certain places where they're not allowed. And one of the counselors said, oh, it's always nice to go out and have a cocktail after you've worked late. And I thought, oh my God, I have never gone out and had a cocktail after I worked late. <laughs> I don't think anybody that I know, you know, none of the people I hang, hang out with is for, in the first place until now that I'm a rich city counselor making 93 grand a year. I didn't have the money to go out and have a cocktail after work. 
Right. Um, but it's a different, if it's a different life, and I'm not there to represent that life so much. I don't want that, the people in that life to have a bad time. If they have an individual problem or something, I'll try and solve it or work towards it. A solution for it. Yeah. But mostly, I'm focused on folks that that are in the middle or below the middle in terms of income. Okay. And, and also people of color, racialized people, trying to make sure they get a good deal. Okay, that's good. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Um, with respect to now, you, you your answer was no as far as the council of a whole. But are there any city councilors that you currently work with who are you're quite well aligned like are there any in particular that you find you are able to work with on a lot of things well i can work with, i'm i'm big on climate i think uh-huh. we really need to get our gh greenhouse gas emissions down to 50 percent by 2030 and um I, we need to do more actually because we're not going to meet our targets at the at the current rate and uh so i work with uh the greens and one city on that stuff okay yeah Uh, The Broadway plan, uh, on June 9th, we expected council to vote. And as of today, the 16th, when we're we're filming here, the 16th of June, there's still been no vote. Um, With all the rhetoric coming around the mayor regarding uh, renters' protections, do you believe him and do you believe in him with respect to this view of of, of renters' protections? Well, I don't believe in people. Okay. I believe in, like... A policy that would work and I think the policy that he's put forward that uh, people in existing apartments should have the right of to go into a new apartment if they're done evicted at the same rate I think that's a good policy I don't think it's good enough okay I've already made an amendment to strengthen it and I intend to make some more ma- uh, amendments to strengthen and what would be an example of that what were one of the amendments that you made to strengthen it um, the one that I made, I'm last on the queue, so a lot of them I haven't made yet. But, oh, I so see. So mine was an amendment to his amendment, <laughs> okay. which is why it took so long. Okay. Um, which was basically that, so that people could get into apartments of the same size that they were leaving. Okay. So there's a lot of people in the Broadway plan area that have relatively cheap apartments um, that are big, like a 600 square foot one bedroom. So say they get a rent top up, move to another place, wait for the new building to be built, then move into the new building. Are they just going to get a one bedroom that's like 450 square feet? Right. So that's, okay, that's valid. I don't want that. So yeah. my, my motion is to try and stop that. Um, now, the, this Broadway plan is a 30 year plan. I mean, it's not something meant to just happen over the next 18 months. How can voters and counselors buy an idea into an idea that developers who agree now to protecting renters' rights will still be in agreement in that five, ten, and fifteen years from now? Um, the way the city does uh, that is they have housing agreements. Okay. And most of the housing agreements say that they last for sixty years or the life of the building, whichever is longer. Oh, really? So if you have a housing agreement, if if you have a rule that says twenty percent of the housing has to be at twenty percent below CMUC, or you have a rule that says uh, the tenants who are demo evicted get to come at their same rate, that would be enshrined in a housing agreement. Okay. For sixty years of the life of the building. Okay. This concept of affordable uh, housing. Is it really achievable here in Vancouver, Jean? It could be if we had lots of, well, when the cheapest, fastest thing we could do for to get 
would be to preserve the affordability that we already have. Okay. And that would be to have vacancy control. Vacancy control would be a law that landlords can't raise the rents as much as they like when tenants leave. We have that now. Vacancy control. Yeah. Okay. So this is the idea that um, Breen's my renter. I'm a landlord. He leaves. Right now, once he's gone, I can jack the rent up to whatever I want. And then you come along as a new renter and you've got to say he's paying it for simple math. He's paying 1500 I can raise it to 2000 And what you're proposing is that I'm capped as to how much I can raise it by so that as a new renter, you're not having to pay that huge spike in rental costs. Yeah. Is that, have I got that right? Yeah. And CMHC does surveys of rentals in Vancouver and they find that Apartments that are for rent are renting for a lot more than apartments that are rented. And every year the amount goes up. So every year we're losing affordability in 10, 20,000 units. Okay. So if we have vacancy control, that could solve that problem and it would be relatively cheap. Be way cheaper than building a new social housing unit, which is expensive. You've got to buy the land, you've got to pay for construction. Yeah. So vacancy control is the first thing we have it in SRO hotels. Uh, there is a big problem with investor landlords buying up the hotels, booting out the existing low-income tenants so they could raise the rents as much, you know, double, triple the rents. We have it now, and uh, I'm hoping that we can expand that to the rest of the city after the next election. Okay. So that's the first thing about housing then. Um, I mean, we have this huge homeless problem. Yes. <laughs> we need to have more housing that people who are low-income people can afford. Uh, how do you get the money for that? COPE sure. has been advocating for a progressive property tax. In order to get that, we need a change in the city charter by the province. Uh, but uh, we need to, the first first stage in getting something is to ask for it. So I think we need to, you know, build up a really strong campaign, ask for a progressive property tax. Then we could tax people who own mansions at a higher rate than people that own, say, a $400,000 condo. Okay. We get more money. We could put it into first. I'd put it into ending homelessness, and then start putting it into building housing that lower income renters can afford. Okay. Okay, that's good. And I do have a question on your mansion tax later on, uh, but this is a great, um, a great segue into the topic of homelessness. Now, the city of Vancouver has been buying up these hotels to house the homeless. Uh, examples include Days Inn on Kingsway, uh, the Best Western in Mount Pleasant the Biltmore Hotel, and the former Ramada Hotel. Um, now, housing alone is not enough, though. If you look at a lot of these people, um, they need what they I describe, or has been, I don't describe, it's described as wraparound services. Um, so how do you go about accomplishing that? Is that a responsibility of this um, city government, or is this something that should be passed on to the provincial or federal government? Traditionally, the city has provided the land. The province provides some construction costs and operation costs and the feds provide uh, uh, construction and or acquisition costs which they provided some of the money for those hotels that you just listed off okay uh, so that's the way it goes um in my opinion that's historically yeah what is and it that's like to... basically what's happening now okay so it's uh, not changed yeah in and this, your view. the city does provide grants to nonprofits uh, to um, increase the affordability of the units that they're providing um, in my opinion, if we could get housing for people, 
and we wouldn't and they wouldn't have experienced homelessness for I think homelessness creates the need for the services. I see. Because it's so awful being homeless. Right. You know, people have told me, for example, that the some women have told me that they use uh, upper drugs so that they won't be raped while they're sleeping on the street. I see. So if you can get housing for people, uh, then they don't have to deal with these mental health issues. Right. They don't need all these services. So I think once we get to housing, things will calm down a bit. We won't need so many services. Okay. But That's an interesting now, some philosophy. Some people need services. Yeah. Um, sometimes the housing that is provided with all these services is too institutional for people. It's kind of like they, I've heard them describe it as jail. Okay. They can't have their relatives visit. Um, things like that. They can't have their kids visit sometimes. So um, I, I've been, I know there are people in the community that are working on a different model of management so that we can have different models that suit everybody. Yeah. Maybe one that's more tenant run, one that does have all those strict rules, and then some that are more, that don't have any supports, but are just housing that low-income people can afford. Right. Because if you're on welfare, you're getting 900 and some. If you're on disability, you're getting 1,100 and some. You can't rent. Yeah, how do you any. get get by on that? Yeah. So the whole that's the other thing is welfare rates or social assistance rates, welfare and disability. They're so low that they've created the need for the provincial and federal governments to build these whole new categories of housing to serve these people. Right. Whereas back in the day when I was on welfare in the seventies, um, you could just rent a place like anybody else. Right. Um, to finish off on our conversation around housing, um, being a bit of a free market activist myself or believe in uh, believe in in what the free market does, isn't it just simply a matter of supply and demand? Like I mean, if, if we just allowed builders to just build and create more, you know, housing, wouldn't that uh, fix a lot of the issues? I've seen I've heard builders on CBC radio saying <laughs> We will not, we cannot build for anyone making less than 75,000 a year. Okay. So your free market stuff might work for people making 75,000 a year, but so the average, the median the, renter household makes 50,000. Right. That, that's a good point. So one of the things we've heard from builders a lot, we've talked to a lot of, of prominent builders who none of them, you know, interesting, will want to come on camera to say this because they're worried about the blowback on getting their projects approved. So they only talk to us privately. Uh, basically tell us that, um, you know, the part of the big problem is that it takes so long to get projects, projects approved through city, through city hall, not necessarily because of I know. council, right? They're always griping about that. The yeah. city is trying to work on it. Uh, the, but it is a real the problem. The I mean, times have gone down, but there are, I, I am big on keeping the inspections for life safety things and yeah. not so big on inspections for um, you know, how pretty it is or right. um, aesthetic things. And yeah. I think we could cut some. Yeah. The standards are just like so yeah. insanely high. I mean, yeah. it's a, I mean, I can only speak to my own personal experience of trying to get a simple permit in Vancouver versus uh Saanich on Vancouver Island where my folks live. And uh, I mean, there is a difference of like four months waiting for a full building permit versus like but, a year and a half. But that, I mean, permitting time could, could, eke up the affordability a little bit, uh -huh. but it's not going to end it's not homelessness. Gonna, okay. It's not going to get housing for people making 30 or 40 or 50,000 yeah. a year. Fair, fair point. We need government money for yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good. 
Well, you seem like a great activist uh, to have people, you know, those people who are in those categories to be on having you on their side. And, you know, builders build housing for lower income people too. You hire the contractor to dig it. They're the ones that build it. So they yeah. can make a profit from it. Right. Good point. So, so okay, now we're going to pivot to yourself, brain reconciliation. Let me just start by saying, as we did our last interview, some of my questions may come across as being silly. They're not, they're, they're genuine questions. So I, I don't mean to offend anybody if I don't say the right wording or have the form the question the right way. I just want to be really clear on that because I am here to learn. Reconciliation, according to the dictionary, is restoration of friendly relations. Hmm. Historically, I would not classify Canada's history with the Indigenous people as being very friendly. And I think most people would agree with that. Um, why do you think we use the word reconciliation the way we do? Well, you know what? It's really interesting that you use the word reconciliation because there's the common understanding that most of us are going on. And then there's the Supreme Court of Canada's definition of reconciliation, which goes back to uh, a dissenting opinion in the 90s that was adopted as the majority opinion in the Haida decision in 2004. And that their definition, the, the highest court of Canada's definition of reconciliation is that Indigenous people were here first. They were rightfully in control of the land. And the Crown has de facto control of the land, which means they don't have legal control, but they have factual control through the military, essentially, through occupancy. And the Supreme Court of Canada says reconciliation is making those two things work together. And as that has continued to develop, it's more and more becoming about assimilation 2.0. The Supreme Court of Canada is essentially trying to um, legitimize Canada's illegal control of the territory. So they've admitted it, but now they're trying to make it the, the state of affairs in Canada. That's very different than what you and I think reconciliation yes. is. So when I hear the government of Canada talking about reconciliation, I know as a lawyer what they're talking about is not what we're thinking about. And so not only have there been problems historically, there are still a lot of problems today in Canada that are coming from the Canadian government trying to maintain its de facto control instead of moving forward in a more, um, you know, in a more, um, in a less adversarial way, in a more cooperative way, recognizing you know that the history uh really didn't work out the way it was promised you know back when treaties were signed uh indigenous nations were looking at it as we're going to share this land and the prosperity of the of the settler communities that are coming is going to be shared with us they're going to they're going to teach us you know education was part of the treaties they're going to teach us about what they know so that we can pass that kind of, uh, uh, you know, that benefit on our children. Instead, what did we get? We got Indigenous people put on reserves, on a pass system, right. illegal to vote in Canada until uh, the 1950s, illegal to hire the service as a, a lawyer until the 1950s. Um, you know, there's still 50% of children in uh, child welfare today are Indigenous. We talked about that in 2019 and how the economics of it is that... Um, the federal government transfers money to the provinces, so the provinces are um, encouraged to apprehend more Indigenous children so they can get more money 
flowing into yeah, that's, provincial that's coffers. Unreal, unreal. Yeah. Yeah. So the government is a serious problem when it comes to reconciliation. I think if you and I and average people were doing it based on that uh, that dictionary definition, we'd be in a lot better spot than we are right now. Okay. Well, it seems then that you're what you're saying is you're at least embrace that philosophy, the one that's not this I know this legal you know Supreme Court definition, but the one that we've got here out of the dictionary, the idea of of men, you know restoring friendly relations. I I I agree with the dictionary definition, and I also agree with the definitions coming out of the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice. If we were going by international law instead of Canada's domestic law, which yeah. is built to benefit the existing infrastructure, the right. in, in, existing order. Yeah. If we were going by international courts, a lot of things would change in this country very quickly uh, along similar lines to how things changed in South Africa very quickly in the, in the 90s when uh, apartheid was abandoned by yeah. that country. Okay, good. Well, on that note, in 2014, COPE adopted policies advocating for Indigenous representation at the municipal level. Can you expand a bit more on what these policies are? Well, I mean, the, the, I, I think that one of the ways that we can uh, have more representation at the municipal level is by, for instance, going back to the city of Saskatoon and their adoption of the uh, uh, representative for matriarchs. The way that works is it's an independent position that reports directly to city council. And uh, she, because it's specifically set up as a woman since it's uh, the position is to deal with Indigenous women, girls and two-spirit people, she would... Um, she would have the uh, ability to investigate complaints from the public against any department, including the police. And if she finds the complaint is justified, she can make recommendations which are delivered to city council through a public reporting process. Mm. So it's all transparent. It's all about accountability of city council. If they're told this is happening. This is hmm. a recommendation on how we can change it. Then city council has to deal with it or not and then they're owning it right they're right. owning the decision yeah. not to do sure. something about it um when when working on the report and i made that uh you know helped to develop that recommendation i didn't think that the city of saskatoon would, would go forward with it because politicians don't like accountability most of the time <laughs> let's be honest right yeah. but more accountable government is better government yeah and um they yeah they they went with it and it's fantastic and uh gene's been trying to get me to run in municipal government for two years and, and now you're here <laughs> and now i'm here because uh i saw in that moment when when i got the phone call that it had been adopted we can do this cities can do really amazing things yeah. uh if they've got the people in there that want to make it happen yeah. you know we, yeah. we need innovators at, at city hall and yeah. citizens can help yeah. by electing green. <laughs> yeah, right. Good. There's and the plug. Daniel. Fair enough. There's a good plug. I don't remember if it was yourself, Amanda, or David Eby, but it was one of the two of you who told me about this idea that um, that we get really passionate about federal politics, but at the end of the day, it's what affects you the most are, are what happens in the municipal, the municipal government. The city is closest to the people. The city is closest to the people. I like that. <laughs> Breen, if you were to give the city of Vancouver a report card on how they've done as far as achieving reconciliation not at that uh you know supreme court 
uh, definition, but by your view of reconciliation, what grade would you give the city today? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, <laughs> I'm not keen on, on grades. And the reason is, you know. Okay, how about a thumbs up, thumbs down, or sideways? You know, it, it's, it's probably, depending on the department, uh-huh. it's somewhere between a thumbs down and a, and a sideways. Okay. You know, when we're talking about the police department, uh, it's a it's a thumbs down. It's a Is big it? thumbs down really? on so many levels. Uh, when we're talking about the city's commitment to reconciliation, I, I like that. I like the the language. Um, I like the intent behind it. But um, is it kind I, of like greenwashing? I mean, is well, it just? Well, I think it just... what it, I think what it is is unless you're a lawyer, it, you're, pro you're probably hearing for the first time this idea, this legal definition of reconciliation, uh -huh. and I'm not sure that many councillors uh, at at City Hall understand that distinction. And so they may just be, you know, rolling out that that other definition of reconciliation. Okay. Um, well, my, my tie in question to this was going to be uh, what areas within the city, uh, the city's parameters of reconciliation could they make improvements on? It sounds to me like you would say number one is within the police force. Yeah, the police force needs to be more, more uh, directly accountable um, you know, it's funny. What you are some big things you would change? Uh, you mentioned off the top that the I'm city a, doesn't control the police. Though. Yeah, that's, that's a big problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The city doesn't, doesn't have uh, a lot of control over the police. And in BC, there's less municipal oversight of police than in other provinces. Okay. So we can talk about the financial aspect of that later in a, yeah. in a minute. But, um, you know, one of the big things for me, I'm in the labor movement, uh, but... I don't believe the police unions are unions. I actually believe that based on the way the courts treat the police and talk about the police in court decisions, that they should be regulated by uh, the same as lawyers, as a professional association, and uh, they should be licensed. And when police do things like uh, arrest former judges because they're black and match a description and it's completely ridiculous, uh, they should be going before a review board to determine whether or not they should be licensed as police. Okay. Um, if they're off, uh, you know, uh, wearing certain symbols on their uh, on their uniforms, which they deny or hate symbols, but for which there is a long uh, known history of those uh, symbols uh, representing white supremacy, then uh, they should be going before a review board. And I think some police officers would lose the license to be police. Okay. And that would be a good thing. You know, you know people so have those, said- those are some neat ideas uh, around police. But as you pointed out, Gina, and I didn't really, under, yeah. really thank you for educating us that, that, you know, if you're a city councilor, you don't really get to decide how the police are run. So you get elected to city council, bring. What are some things you would immediately do to try and help improve reconciliation at the municipal level? Well, I, I, I mean, Vancouver needs an independent representative for matriarchs, uh, the same as Saskatoon. Okay. This should be a nationwide thing. Okay. It immediately increases transparency, but also the other thing that that office can do, there are a number of things the office does, and one of them is she can act as, uh, as a, um, you know, an intermediary or as a witness or an intervener in court processes. So... Oftentimes, children are taken into foster care on, on a pretense because of the financial motivation. And uh, one of the reasons for the uh, representative in Saskatoon is so that she can uh, 
create a diversion process essentially to prevent that from happening. And she can go into courts and explain to judges why um, child welfare is acting not in the best interests of children when they're taking children uh, into foster care. Okay. Okay, Breen, so carrying on with this concept of having a um, uh, Olympic Games here in 2030 that's uh, man, it's, it's kind of wrapped around the idea of reconciliation. I know Councillor Hardwick proposed that we should be putting this idea of having the Olympic Games on a plebiscite in this upcoming election. Are you in favor of, of this where voters of Vancouver should decide whether there's a, another winter, winter Olympics here or should this be left to city council members, mayors and, and the indigenous community? Well, this is a tension that happens in politics all the time. Um, and it's a, it's a well-known phenomenon. It's called tyranny of the majority. And uh, because Indigenous peoples uh, don't form the majority in Canada, they don't form the majority in Vancouver, um, democratic processes tend to create hardship on Indigenous peoples. And governments try to balance that through social programs, through human rights legislation. And so the plebiscite uh, could very well end up um, denying Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations the ability to put in a bid uh, that they, you know, for all uh, the signs right now, they're very committed to it. They, they really want to see this happen. Um, and, you know, we, we need to, I think we need to see what they're proposing and what the options are on the table, uh, at least before considering a plebiscite. But, you know, the hard part for government is, you know, at what point does a plebiscite just act to reinforce uh, past injustices? It's, it's not an easy question, that's yeah. for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've often thought that uh, when I've observed, especially in the last, uh, the last, say, four or five years, I've observed this uh, development of reconciliation at the federal level and then the provincial level. And, and having grown up in Port Alberni in the 1970s and 80s, so we're close to the same age, and I grew up in a small town with a fairly large Indigenous population um, and a very different way in which, you know, Caucasian people, Indigenous people engage, engage with each other back then versus now. I think it's a lot more peaceful than it was when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and, and so I look at reconciliation and I think, well, there's, it seems like I use that word greenwashing earlier, which I can't say. I mean, I'm a big fan of the environment and I don't like greenwashing, especially mm -hmm. by big corporations. And I'm, I think to myself, for all this talk about reconciliation, we still don't have indigenous people at the table when it comes to forming policies and law. Mm -hmm. And you would get this because you're a lawyer. Yeah. Now, in New Zealand, there, it's actually mandated. There are, I don't remember how many, like four seats or so within their parliament that are dedicated to the indigenous people of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And I have thought to myself, like, what better way to have legitimate reconciliation than to provide guaranteed seats at the, you know, in, in Victoria or in Ottawa to the indigenous people? You know, they, they rep, how many people, what the indigenous people today in Canada, what do they represent as their total population? It's, uh, it's, it's quite small. And part of the problem with nailing it down to a specific number is that non-status Indians and Métis people are not closely tracked by the federal government. Okay. So the numbers, you know, could vary. Get, get, throw me a number, though. Uh, 8%? You know, I, I, I'd say it's less than 8%. Less than 8? Yeah. Yeah. 
six, yeah, that, that, six. yeah, like five percent was kind of where I was going to land, okay. but you know, it could be as high as ten. That's the that's the problem, right? And right. Um, well, okay, let's do some simple math. Yeah. So let's say it's six. Well, let's say we all agree it's six percent. Sure. And let's say for simple math, there's a hundred seats in uh, if provincially. There's not. There's like eighty nine or something like that. But let's just say for simple math, it's a hundred. That would mean that there should be six dedicated seats to represent that population base. Like the, to me, that's reconciliation. That's saying we're going to take a colonial system and insert, you know, the population base of the indigenous people a guaranteed spot. They get they get to have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Now, in New Zealand, they changed legislation there, I don't know how many years ago, but they, they made it mandatory or uh, obligatory for the parliament in New Zealand to have a certain number of seats available for their indigenous people. And so as someone who's kind of observed this unfold over the last you know, five or 10 years, it seems to me crazy that we do all this talk around reconciliation, but we've never given the people who we're trying to reconcile with a damn seat at the table. Like, I mean, talking about like giving the indigenous community a, a guaranteed seat, uh, regardless of how many people may show up to vote within their community, to have a seat in parliament in Ottawa, on Ottawa, or to have a seat within the legislative assembly in Victoria, or for that matter, somehow have a say here municipally. Mm -hmm. So my question to you is, is this something that we can be done? And if we look at it at the municipal level, do you have any ideas around how we could accomplish something like this if you support this idea? Mm -hmm. Well, so what I could go into great detail about, but I won't because of the length of this podcast, is that uh, there are questions about who are the legitimate owners of, of the land that makes up Canada. And even the Supreme Court of Canada has written uh, very recently that the, the title to the land is not apparently legally in favor of Canada. On the other hand, I, you know, I can't speak for all indigenous nations, but I could go back to Saskatchewan where I'm from and, and talk to like my, my, my Cree relatives and talk to elders in Cree communities, which I've done in the past. And, and they would say to me, you know, we just want, we, we don't even care about like trying to figure out, you know, how much has been lost and everything. We just want to go to what was promised originally, which is cooperation between our peoples and and sharing of the responsibility for this land so that's what you're talking about that's in, pretty genuine in a in a in, pretty, a in a real way yeah but the question is what constitutes a fair you know allotment <laughs> and uh that's that's where the devil's in the details uh -huh. but i i think that um one of the things that Vancouver could be doing, other than having the, you know the the uh, uh, independent representative for matriarchs, which we talked about, um, would be finding more ways to bring uh, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh leadership and the nations into decision making in Vancouver, and also we can't forget about the uh, you know the urban indigenous population uh, people who. Uh, are also guests on this territory, but indigenous. Um, there are definitely ways that the that the municipal government could be doing it up and up into, uh, like you say, um, um, specifically allotting seats. But the other really great thing that I found in Vancouver is a lot of people want to see elected indigenous uh, councillors. Um, they want indigenous politicians in their politics because 
they know that things are wrong and they know that uh, people like me can help to educate and build bridges on these things. And so, you know, this is not municipal, this is federal. But uh, I was standing out in the rain uh, in 2021, waving a sign. And this guy comes up on his bicycle uh, and he gets off and he says, I I just want to tell you this really quick. He says, you know, I, uh, I'm in the I, I'm in the top tax bracket. So your party is uh, is is going to make me pay more tax if you win. But what's happening to Indigenous people in this country is a travesty. It's horrendous, and that's why I voted for you in the advance polls. We need people like you that are speaking truth to power and helping us get out of this mess that we find ourselves in. And then he got on his that bike. That feel pretty good. Yeah, he boy got on his bike and he and he and he and he and he went on his way. And you know, it's you know this the thing about politics is it gets so polarized, and you know people get caught on one little thing, and then they just completely ignore everything else because well, I don't agree with this person on this, so I'm just to hell with them, right? Um, I'm out there canvassing and I'm trying to find the common ground that we can work together on because at the end of the day, I don't care if you're conservative or or a communist, we're human beings and 70%, 80% of what we do is coded in our DNA and we have this commonality, you know, Um, the other little details. You know, let's let's sweat those once we really deal with what matters to us. And I'm saying that as a as a father now. And, you know, I'm thinking about the future. So let's let's all think about the future. Yeah, well said. There is a risk or a concern, as we talked about with Jean a minute ago, that if we start taxing names like Amazon, I mean, she met her response was, well, we, you know, what we, we can replace them with smaller industries. But one of my concerns that I have as a Vancouverite myself is that if we make the cost of doing business too high here in Vancouver, and it comes from le- many levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I use the, you know, even the, the 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 25 cent cup tax as a good example of just one of the small million, you know, death by million cuts. So mm-hmm. how do we stop people from leaving the city of Vancouver because uh, the cost of living is too high here not just because of housing, but for all sorts of other things, including taxes. Yeah, well, I I think that, you know, what we need to be looking at is the holistic picture. And um, I believe that uh, the situation we find ourselves in is in part because we've dug ourselves into a hole, not just us in Vancouver, but the federal government and the provincial government helped get us there. And I think that a lot of it has to do with too much ideology and people getting so caught up in like, this is my position and this is where I stand and it's the hill I'm going to die on that they don't look at, you know, there are compromises, there are ways to make things happen. So talking about Amazon, um, the, uh, you know, businesses that are transitioning from startup to to mid-sized businesses don't have a home in Vancouver. We need to find ways for them to have a home in Vancouver because that that's common, will, that's common feedback I actually hear. You're yeah, absolutely right. It'll help it'll help yeah. our economy immensely. Uh it's kind of that Walmart effect. Like you put a Walmart into a community and everybody gets access to all these cheap goods at monster, you know, volume, but the small businesses around them that sell previously sold goods are all they all disappear. Yeah. And you know, 
when we look across the border at where Amazon's coming from, those cities have dug themselves in that much deeper in the hole. And that's why Amazon is coming over to us. It's safer and it's cheaper here. And that's saying something when they're leaving American cities to come to Canada. We don't want to continue that trend and become further dug in. Right. Uh, Amazon, I think they're willing to pay a little more if uh, if it's good for them in the long run. I, I think that uh, I think that we uh, we 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 shouldn't be suggesting that improving our communities will drive businesses away. If we do it right and we do it smart, it will encourage them to to remain. It'll encourage more to come. Okay. Um, you, even if you had all four elected, you still wouldn't have a majority. So what are some of the other? I mean, there's nine parties running here, Breen. So out of the other eight, what are some of the other parties that you see yourself aligned with? Well, I'll tell you the parties I don't see myself aligned with. How, okay. how about we do that? Sure. I'm not aligned with any party that justifies the police having 20% of the city budget. I am not aligned with those people. I look at Calgary or Toronto or Ottawa or Quebec City where their police budgets are, are roughly half of what we're spending and uh, they're managing just fine. And in some cases they're doing better than us uh, in terms of managing uh, crime rates. I think that um, the situation that we've got uh, is that we are spending an obscene amount on police. And uh, you know, two of those counselors are married to police officers. So uh, I just can't get behind that. I just can't. Um, you know, fiscal responsibility uh, to me is looking at our emergency services and trying to achieve parity between the fire budget and the police budget. I think if those two budgets are closer to each other, then we're doing uh, a lot better as a city. And then that's freeing up resources to, um, to be proactive about the social issues in our city instead of being reactive, which is what we're doing with police. Okay. We're gonna now finally switch to our favorite topic, which is uh, financial accountability. Um, so Gene, you've proposed, and you mentioned this earlier, a mansion tax, a tax of, of 1% on the assessed value of mansions between five to $10 million, and then an extra 2% on any homes that are valued over $10 million. Uh, by my math, that means that a person living, say, in a $25 million home today, which pays about $67,000 a year in property taxes, not including the school tax that's an add-on by the provincial government, would go from making, paying $67,000 a year in property taxes to nearly half a million dollars a year in property taxes. Um, is the current rate of tax not high enough as it is? Well, if you've got a $25 million house, you've got a lot of options that renters, that homeless people, that people that have a $2 million house don't have. You have an awful lot of options. I don't think your figures are right because oh. we, uh, first of all, when we, we're, what we're asking for is a the right to have a progressive property tax. That could happen in a whole bunch of different ways. One way it could happen would be the, a way that you suggested. But when we did the numbers on it, for people that have, say, a house that's worth uh, $6 million, they'd only pay the extra tax on the $1 million. Okay. And if it's a, $10 million, a $25 million house, they'd only pay the extra tax on the 15 million that was over the 10 million. So it wouldn't okay. be that high. Okay. But mm -hmm. yeah, so if you can defer your taxes if, 
a lot of people can defer taxes under all kinds of situations if you have kids, if you're old, if you have um, disabilities. And um, so your heirs won't get as much money, but property wealth is one of the big uh, reasons that we have so much inequality in the, in the city and in the province and in the country. And if we can equalize that a little bit, so much the better, particularly if we can use the money to do something like end homelessness. Right. Okay. Now, with respect to, you mentioned it's the idea of progressive tax, but do you have a structure, like a structure in place today that you'd like to see implemented? Um, well, that was one example. Okay. Like, I would like to do it. That's just for residential too. Okay. So what if we did it for a commercial too? What if we tax Amazon at a higher rate than we tax, you know, a local coffee shop? That right. Isn't Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> what if we tax Starbucks based on all of the properties that they own? Right? Yeah. I Is there would there be any fear? To... Would there be any fear of of seeing businesses like Amazon leaving if their tax structure is too high? Yeah. Well, then we'd have to have local businesses doing what they do, and would that be bad? <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. I think that would be good. Yeah. And if I if I can jump yeah. in too, a lot of smaller businesses <clears throat> and startups are saying that there's no place for them in the middle, so they start up and then. Because of the treatment that Amazon's getting, but there's not a lot of focus on the middle, yeah. um, they end up having to leave Vancouver. Yeah. So we're constantly cycling uh, businesses and startups out. And these people are saying, why Why are you favoring all these big businesses, but completely ignoring the middle? Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I want to ask one more question, if I can, please. Okay. The city of Vancouver's annual operating budget is $1.7 billion. If you look at the city's balance sheet between... Uh, financial assets and non-financial assets, there's almost $8 billion of assets there. Now, as a elected officials for the city of Vancouver, one of your responsibilities is overseeing these assets and this uh, uh, you know, cash cycle of $1.7 billion annually. For our listeners to understand, how can they be confident knowing that you have the skill sets and the knowledge to be able to look after these financial assets? Well, they just have to keep on our case. That's all I can think of. Um, the city is not in a good place when it comes to this stuff. You know, the city has 8% of the revenue. We have 60% of the infrastructure that we have to build and keep in good repair our sewers. You know, we're getting climate change. Sea level is rising. That's going to mean we have to really change our sewers because they're depending on gravity. How are we going to get the money for this? please give us a mansion tax. You know, we desperately need some good sources of revenue to be able to uh, fulfill our responsibilities, particularly with climate change coming. So, and particularly in order to fulfill our responsibilities to keep the greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases. down, yeah. that's gonna take money too. So, um, yeah, it is a bit of a learning curve when you get elected, but um, yeah, the only way you can uh, voters can be sure that their candidates are doing what they want is to keep on their tails. So if people like what they hear between you and Jean and they want to get involved, how do they get involved? What are you looking for? Where, where can you use help? Is it for donations, volunteer time? Yeah, well, all of that, right? Uh, every every political party is asking for money right now. It's uh, it's you know it's something that I've gotten quite used to now that this is my third time campaigning. 
uh, you know, you, you don't have to give a lot to make a big difference. I mean, some people have, you know, if you've got 1200 bucks to throw at your candidates, then, then go ahead. We'll take your money and we'll thank you very much for it. Uh, and it will, it's not going to your candidate. It's going to what matters to you. It go, it's going to the person you're trying to vote in so that they can do at city council what you want done. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Some people think they're, that the candidate is somehow <laughs> gaining an advantage from political donations. And no, you know, the candidate's not getting paid. Um, but, you know, five what, bucks, what? 20 bucks can okay. make a huge difference if enough people do it. Um, and then volunteering, uh, absolutely. Do you guys have a campaign office? Uh, we don't have a campaign office yet. Website? Uh, but the website, copevancouver.ca. Well, this has been a great conversation. Gene Swanson, thank you very much for being in today. Uh, Brie Nulette, thank you. Good luck with your campaign and uh, best of luck on October 15th.